turn in your Bibles to John uh, chapter 17. John 17, we'll be looking at the conclusion of Jesus' high priestly prayer. As you uh, turn there, I want to ask you a question, and maybe you can uh, answer it with a show of hands. Uh, How many of you have ever been sailing? Okay, a few of you. Uh, How many of you have actually, like, done the sailing, not just that you've been on the the sailboat? Okay, a few of you. Well, uh, I have uh, been sailing uh, once, and uh, besides the fact that I nearly deposited my wife into the lake with a particularly dicey turn, I think things went pretty well. Um, And uh, when you go sailing, uh, or so I was told, it's important that you uh, keep your your eyes uh, set on the horizon. This will uh, keep you steady. It'll keep you uh, zigging uh, and zagging back and forth. Uh, If you're going to plot your course safely from where you are to where you're going, you need to to have your eyes fixed on the horizon. So there's great value in having a goal, a destination in mind. And as we turn to John uh, 17, one final time, I think that Jesus' prayer here is meant to give us a, a steadying comfort and confidence as we walk Uh, through this life by faith. Jesus has said in this prayer that he doesn't wish to remove his people uh, from the world. And as uh, many of us know firsthand, to be a Christian does not excuse us from uh, great difficulties and otherwise frightening circumstances. And though Jesus doesn't intend to uh, spare us from suffering, he does want to help us to set before us like a fixed point on the horizon at least two things from this passage, the assurance of his love and the certainty of future glory with him. He wants to set this before our eyes uh, that we shall be uh, uh, partakers of his glory, that this is certain Uh, as we shall see, on account of his prayers and on account of his proclamation or revelation and on account of his presence. So let's look at John 17, verses 24 to 26. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, We thank you for these words set on the pages of Scripture. And as we turn to them, we ask for your help. Ask that you would help me to communicate your message to your people faithfully and clearly. And ask, Lord, for us as those who come beneath the word that we would gladly, cheerfully receive it and apply it. Lord, it is a wonderful thing that we will be considering this evening. Help us not to lose how amazing it is that we should be invited into the presence of Christ to see his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So once more, we come to Jesus, and he has his eyes lifted up to heaven. 
He's addressing uh, his father in the longest of his recorded prayers. And it uh, bears repeating that Jesus' time is running out. He's going to the cross. He's going to die. uh, And then uh, he will later on be resurrected and ascend into heaven. This is the scene we come to with Jesus' death being imminent. and, And that fact injects a weightiness into the things that Jesus prays for. His disciples are are likely uh, gathered around him as he prays, and this will be the last time that Jesus prays with his disciples before the crucifixion. Now, by this point, as we've seen, Jesus has already prayed for the preservation of his people, for their holiness, and for their unity in the truth as they engage in the Christ-proclaiming mission that he has given to them. Here, though, at the conclusion of his prayer, Jesus makes a request He asks the Father that his people, those whom the Father has given to him, might be with him where he is. So let's unpack this remarkable request. First, notice that Jesus asks for certain people. Now, as we've noted uh, noted previously in John's gospel, humanity's default condition is one of alienation from and hostility to God. We are rebels who who will not willingly bend the knee to God's authority. And so we are, whether we uh, do it politely or whether we do it with great malice, we are at war with God, our creator. And the nature of this rebellion is such that even if we wanted uh, to, to change, which we don't, we could do nothing to change our hostility toward God. And yet rather than wiping us out, God uh, chose that he would not simply condemn the whole of humanity, but he graciously chose that some of those from this world, from this, uh, uh, from this group of rebels, that he would rescue us out of our rebellion, that we would be pulled out of the enemy camp. Those whom God the Father in his mercy chose to be saved are given to Jesus, and it's Jesus who rescues his people by laying down his life for them. All these people whom Jesus, or who are given to Jesus will, the Bible tells us, believe in him. So when we come to Jesus praying for those whom the Father has given to him, he is praying for all those who would ever believe. He's praying for all Christians. And Jesus asks uh, concerning his people that the Father would grant that they would be with him where he is. Now, only a few chapters earlier, Jesus tells his disciples who are troubled at the prospect that Jesus is going to leave. He tells them not to be troubled, but to believe because he is going to his father's house where there are many rooms and he goes to prepare a place for them so that they might be with him where he is. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross to die. And he knows that after his resurrection from the dead, he's going to return to his Father in heaven and that his disciples will remain in the world. He will no longer be with them uh, as he had been to this point. From his uh, ascension onward, Jesus' people, uh, as, so long as we're in the body, we uh, do not see Jesus as, as we might see each other face to face. We can see him really, we can see him truly, but we see him by faith as he's presented in his word. But Jesus here is asking the Father that he would bring us to be where he is so that we might be with him, that we might be in his presence. So where is Jesus now? Well, we might know the Sunday school answer to this, but let's consider a little deeper. 
The Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is presently seated in power at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. We can easily say that truth, but it's a a truth that's uh, far harder for us to comprehend. Think of of the Apostle Paul, uh, who said that he was caught up into paradise and and he heard things he uh, he could not utter. Things which a man uh, cannot or that cannot be told. So, in, but in order for us to get a, a, a deeper sense here of the incredible richness of Jesus' prayer request, listen to what John writes elsewhere, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he's writing in the Book of Revelation. Pay particular attention to the the sights and sounds of the sacred place that he describes. It's from Revelation chapter four. He said, "At once I was in the spirit." And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John goes on to describe that scene further. He he talks of the four living creatures who who, uh, are around the throne, who continuously cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he talks about the 10,000 times 10,000 angels which surround the heavenly throne, attending to that throne. Even with the words right before us, it's hard to fathom this scene. But it's the place where Jesus is now. And it's the place where he wants every one of his people to be with him around the throne. Jesus Asked that his people might be with him for a particular purpose, so that we might see his glory, to see Jesus in all his glory. What will that be like? Well, Jesus gives us a clue, I think, to what he means. He qualifies the glory which all Christians shall see by saying, it's my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, I think it's the word given here that's striking because Jesus, as God the Son, is eternally equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit. As one person of the Trinity, Jesus has a glory that is essential to his being. It can't be given, it can't be taken. As the one who is in the form of God, Jesus has a never begun, never ending glory. It's a glory which the prophet Isaiah described in his great vision in Isaiah 6. Of, of Jesus on the throne. John tells us that it's Jesus. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him being Jesus. Jesus has an essential glory. It's his glory by virtue of his being eternal God, a glory which was his before the world existed. And since this is a glory that is not given... I don't think Jesus is asking particularly for us to see that. His request is not simply that his people would see him in the glory of his deity, in the glory of his godness. There's another glory of which we might speak. 
It's the glory that Jesus speaks of here in verse 24 and which he wants us to see. It's a glory which is given to the Son by the Father because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. It's this, it's Jesus' glory as the exalted mediator, as the one sent of God to lay down his life to reconcile sinners to God. The Apostle Peter speaks of of this glory when he says that Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was, was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It's the glory that Paul talks about in Philippians 2 when Jesus, after his humiliation unto death, is raised up and given a name that is above every name. This is the glory which the Son receives from the Father because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world, that he should be the deliverer of God's elect. So Jesus' prayer here is not simply that we would see the radiance of his deity, as amazing, incredible as that would be, but it's a prayer that his people would be with him to see his beauty as the exalted mediator who reconciles God and man. Jesus wants us to see his glory as the mediator because he knows for us to enjoy and to be satisfied in him, to not be terrified by the ferocity of his holiness, then we must gaze upon him in all his glory uh, as the mediator and the one who assures us of the Father's smiling face. What a sight this will be. What an experience to drink in the glory of Jesus as the conquering lamb. The book of Revelation, as we've seen in in the studies Pastor Dale is leading us in, presents us with a picture of this exalted Jesus in all his glory. Jesus bearing our humanity with the white hair of, of wisdom, eyes like the flames of fire, feet like sturdy bronze, a voice which thunders like Niagara Falls, a face shining like the sun at its peak, and yet he's bearing the marks of his suffering by which he ransomed us for God. Revelation 5, 6. The glory of the victorious Savior is a glory which casts an eternal light, which dispels all darkness of evil and sin. Revelation 22 uh, tells us that the city of God, as it, it comes down, the city of God has no need for a sun to shine, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp, that which gives light, is the Lamb. Now, if you're a Christian, there should be something in you that is stirred by the, the, the thought of, of seeing Jesus in his glory. This hope should, should move us. The Apostle Paul, as, as he sat in chains, uh, he thought of this, and his desire was to depart and to be with Christ because he thought that that was far better. We should be moved by this. We should want to see this. But at this point, we need to look again at what Jesus says, what he's praying for. Jesus is not uh, praying for something because we want it, although we should and hopefully uh, we do, but he is praying for something because he wants it. In his prayer, Jesus is bringing the desire of his heart before the Father. He's saying, Father, I desire. Father, I will. Father, I want Now, uh, 
We've probably all had uh, someone that we've looked up to or admired. Maybe it's an athlete, a musician, a pastor, a writer, filmmaker. You admire such people and, and you want to see them in action. Maybe you uh, uh, buy tickets to their performance or to the game. You spend time uh, thinking about them and how it's going to be cool when, when you get to see them perform. Uh, you wait in line for the show or the game to come. And when you actually see them, it, it's uh, pretty cool. But it's one thing for you to want to spend time with them, to just sort of be in their general vicinity, to be at the game, to be at the performance, to be at the party. But it's a whole different thing for the star of the show to want to spend time with you. Suppose that you were standing in line for a, a concert, eagerly awaiting the show, and suddenly the performer walks past you and calls out your name and says, hey, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Do you want to grab a bite after the show? What would your response be if this is the person uh, that you've looked up to? That the star of the show would want to spend time with us should thrill us, shouldn't it? Right? You'd, what, what would your response be? You'd maybe call up a friend. Uh, you'd, you'd maybe uh, take a picture and post it to Instagram. You know, apply the appropriate hashtags, blessed, whatever it is. Don't do that. It's one thing for, for uh, us to want to spend time with someone so important or someone that, that's uh, so admired and worthy of our admiration, but it's an entirely greater thing for that person to want to spend time with us. So what then should we think then that it's Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one who lacks nothing, who says to the Father that he desires that we should be with him to behold his glory. That he wants us to be able to set our eyes upon him, the Son of God, and to have our gaze filled with and satisfied by the most beautiful sight that any eye will ever see. Jesus desires that we should be with him to see and be satisfied by his glory. And Jesus makes this request, as I've said, in the hearing of his disciples, I believe, because he wants to comfort them and give them confidence uh, for the trials of faith which lie ahead. They're being sent into the world on a mission to tell people that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, but this is a mission that is fraught with difficulties. And Jesus knows them all. He knows what he's sending his people into. He knows that the world will hate them as they hated him. He knows that the devil will seek to destroy them. He knows that they will face suffering and they'll face sin and they'll face death. And we face these things too. It might come in different forms in life, but the Christian life here and now is fraught with many difficulties and many tears. The antagonism of a world for believing that Jesus is the only way to God. The ire of children who haven't simply wandered from the faith but have seemingly trampled on it and despise it. Devil's constant temptations to sin and to despair. The fear of death, that of a loved one or our own. We can think of many reasons to fear and to fret. And so I think it is uh, that for this reason, Jesus goes on record with his final request. He's prayed for our preservation. He's prayed for our holiness. He's prayed for our unity. But he wants us to know that we are loved and our future is secure. Since the Christian life is often one that is uh, full of great tumult 
and hardship, Jesus lets us overhear the desire of his heart. And it's that we, his people, should be with him. And this is the desire of the Son of God's heart. So we know that it will happen. Because if it's the desire of the Son's heart, then it also has to be the desire of the Father's heart because we know that the Son only desires what the Father desires. And we know that it's the Father's pleasure to grant the Son's request because He's loved the Son with an eternal love, that He's loved Him before the foundation of the world, as our our text says. And we know that the Son has secured His right to have us with Him because as He agreed with the Father, He laid down His life for us. Whatever should happen to Jesus' people, we can fix our eyes on the fact that Jesus' prayer shall be answered and we shall be with him. What trial, what circumstance could possibly sabotage Jesus' prayer or keep it from being answered? Think, even death, even death, the last enemy to to be defeated, shall not interrupt our communion with the living Christ. Rather, death will be for us, as the uh, Puritan Thomas Watson said, uh, the daybreak of eternal glory. See, Jesus uh, takes death and, and makes it an unwilling servant to his cause to bring God's people into his presence so that we might see the Son in all his beauty. It's a glory uh, that we shall behold that the Apostle Paul says will make all our sufferings even now seem of no consequence when we attain sight of it. And Jesus wants that we should be with him in glory. That's our future hope. But it's not as if Jesus is now just sitting in heaven, uh, waiting on his hands for the Father to grant his request that we should come to him. It's a desire that's not yet fulfilled fully for Jesus, but it will be. And in the meantime, Jesus isn't just waiting idly by. Instead, according to the Father's will, Jesus reveals his father to the world so that those who were given to him from the world might be drawn out of their sin, having our eyes open to see the truth about God and being drawn to Christ. In verse 25, Jesus underscores for us once more that it's the world that uh, does not know God because of its sinful condition. The world doesn't know God because it hasn't known God in his son. The world uh, remains in this condition of spiritual blindness with hearts turned against God. And given that, and given what Jesus says in in, uh, John 17, verse 3, that eternal life is this, to know the Father and to know Jesus, his Son, the world in this condition of spiritual blindness, standing apart from Jesus, not knowing God, they'll never know the glory of the the Savior slain for sinners unless Jesus makes him known. Pastor and theologian Mark Jones writes, those who wish to see Christ face to face in the life to come must in this life, see him by faith. We believe now what we do not yet see, but we must believe, otherwise we shall never see. For as John Owen solemnly wrote, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter, who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. So, so long as you do not know Jesus by faith, you have no reason to expect that you'll see Jesus in his glory. But Jesus knows that there are many whom the Father has given to him who are still yet in the world. They haven't come to know yet the Father through the Son. They're still in their unbelief. And if they were to remain in their unbelief, they would stand condemned. 
never having the satisfaction of, of, of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But they are his gift by the gifting of the Father. And so Jesus will not allow them to remain lost in unbelief. So Jesus, who knows the, the perfect fullness of the Father, will dispel the night of unbelief by making the Father known to him. He says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus were not true to these words. If he, were not, if he did not do this, no person in this room would know God. No person in this room would be able to uh, anticipate with any confident expectation at all that we should see what Jesus is praying for. But Jesus, first through his earthly ministry, and then by the sending of the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of his disciples, he opens the hearts and minds of people like you and me to the reality of God so that we see God not only as our creator, uh, but we see God as uh, one who is merciful and kind and gracious to us in Jesus. Even today, Jesus, by his spirit, causes people like you and me to have our eyes opened as we look to the Bible and the Holy Spirit illumines that so that by the eyes of faith, we can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ on these pages. And as Jesus, by his spirit, makes the Father known to us, and as we receive and embrace Jesus' words as truth, two things will happen. Two things that will happen that will prepare us for the vision of glory that we, as God's elect, shall see. First, we receive the Father's love, and we receive the Son's presence. As we come to know God now, we receive his love we become holy habitations of God's love. It's not just that we uh, know God in some intellectual sense, but we have his love poured out into our hearts, as Paul says in, in Romans 5. God makes himself known to us so that his love might be known by us. To know the Father through the Son isn't just a, a, an exercise of knowing certain facts, but it's a, a personal knowledge that comes uh, so that we might know that we are no longer objects of his displeasure, but we are beneficiaries of his kindness. We're recipients of his love. God in Christ discloses himself to us so that we might know that God loves us in Christ. And it's no weak love with which he loves us. It's no weak love that we receive from him. Notice the love which Jesus says comes to us as we come to know God. It's the love which the Father eternally has for his Son. Think of how much the Father loves the Son, with what kind of love He loves the Son. A pure, unmixed, holy love, forever shared in exchange between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And He pours this love into our hearts. So we might know His love, be assured of it. Secondly, Jesus says, though, that as he makes the Father known, he, Jesus, comes to dwell in us. And he does this by his Spirit. Jesus was going away, but he would not abandon us as orphans. Till the day when Jesus' prayer is answered in all its fullness, and all his people shall be gathered uh, to him where he is, beholding his glory, Jesus has promised to be with us now by his Spirit. Paul, writing to the Colossians, describes the good news which he proclaims in this way. He says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
We receive the Holy Spirit as God's guarantee that those who see by faith now uh, will see by sight in glory one day. Christ in us shall keep us in the truth. He shall secure us against our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ by his Spirit assures us that we are his and we are loved with an everlasting love. He comes even now to dwell in our hearts so that we might one day come to live with him in his heaven. Though we don't have this, uh, the full communion or enjoyment with God that we will one day have when we see him in his glory. Now we have communion with him by his spirit, an assurance that he loves us, that we are his, and that our future is glorious. So you see, Jesus is not just waiting for his desire to be fulfilled, but he is, by his spirit, pursuing his people so that we know him by faith, now as through a glass darkly, but also one day by sight in all his glory. I want to just close with a quote from William Plummer as we think of that sight, which will be ours one day by grace. It says, the enjoyment of God and the Lamb will be ever fresh and new to us through the ages of eternity, for we shall drink of living fountains of waters where new waters are continually springing up in abundance. Our joy shall be pure and unmixed without any dregs of sorrow, solid and everlasting, without interruption. We shall swim forever in an ocean of joy where we shall see nothing but joy wherever we turn our eyes. The presence and enjoyment of God and the Lamb will satisfy us with pleasures evermore and afford us with everlasting delight. That's ours in Christ. Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you've recorded for us your dealings for us with your Father. We thank you for this sweet prayer and, and for the assurances that it gives to us that we are loved, that you desire that we should be with you and behold you in your glory and that our future, and this glorious future, is secure because you've prayed for us and your prayers will be answered because, too, Lord, you have proclaimed your truth so that we might come to know you and you have come to dwell in us. You've given us your presence. And so with Christ in us, the hope of glory, we have confidence that what we see by faith now, we shall one day see by sight. We thank you that this is ours in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.